0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Nora Bateson. Nora is the president of the International Bateson Institute. Hi, Nora.
1: Hi, Jim.
0: Great to have you back. Yeah. This is our second time here. Nora is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and educator. Her work asks the question as to how we can improve our perception of the complexity we live in so we can improve our interactions with the world. Nora wrote, directed, and produced the award-winning documentary, An Ecology of Mind, a portrait of her father, the legendary anthropologist Gregory Bateson, though calling him an anthropologist, puts him in way smaller of a box relative to the actual things he did. She's also written a quite beautiful book called Small Arcs of Larger Circles, which I have read, where she writes about her personal approach to the study of systems and complexity. Some of her current work that I find most interesting is her work on warm data, Warm data is information about the interrelationships integrate elements of a complex system. Focusing on qualitative dynamics, it offers another dimension of understanding to what is learned through quantitative data, i.e. cold data. And you can learn more about warm data and even potentially sign up to have one of your groups do some warm data labs at BatesonInstitute.org slash warm dash data labs So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But today we're gonna talk about something very different. Something that neither of us, I think, actually officially have on our list of things we work on. But it, you know, turns out that something I've been bitching about for a while. And I think I talked to Nora a little bit when we were chatting about something else. And, you know, she had a similar feeling. And I said, why don't we talk about it? I think other people would be interested in this. And this is, I guess we decided to title the talk a return to earnestness. You know, my take on it is I've kind of gotten quite tired at the levels of irony and such and inauthentic stances that so many people seem to be taking these days. You know, It feels like people are moving further and further into simulating life and not actually living life in a grounded way. What do you think about that, Nora?
1: I, I mean, I, I agree with you, Jim, and I, I, I think we, we feel it in, oh. our, in our bodies somewhere. Um, that there's this tonality around all this very opinionated and and usually frankly pre-scripted material, and and what I really sense in that, and I think sense is the right word, is that there hasn't been an inquiry into whatever the topic is that might render us as individuals in a state of confusion. Uh, contradiction, blur, and that to be in that blurry in between is too risky. And so there's a kind of reductionism of the necessary rigor that it takes to wonder if maybe your opinion or the information you have is not enough. And so it's, there's some kind of thing that's happening in, in this sarcasm and irony that is this cheeky brush off of the possibility of of a kind of a, a open-ended lostness which is frankly so needed right now
0: yeah and it strikes me there's you know something almost cowardly about it right we're in a very tough situation as humanity. Our modernism has accomplished miracles, but it has no brakes. It's rushing forward towards the cliff and has no obvious built-in means to stop it. And yet we you know, retreat into an ironic stance where it's really hard to make sense of reality. And I thought I did a little research back, I don't know, six months ago into this question. I didn't know that much about the evolution of modern irony, but I'll, I'll lay out a little bit of what I learned. People who study irony have laid out essentially three layers. Actually, there's a fourth, but that's too scary to even get into. So I'll just lay out the three. One is we start with sincerity or earnestness, as we call it, pre irony. But the first layer of irony is basically basic classic irony of the sort, like for instance, Shakespeare's full of dramatic irony where one character doesn't know what the other's doing. I think of Othello as the classic example of that. But, you know, Macbeth, Hamlet, they all have a classic irony. And then there's also just the classic first level verbal irony where we go to a movie with a bunch of friends and walking out. One of them says, wasn't that a great movie? When obviously it was a huge stinker, right? <laughs> and that's a normal part of human life. However, I would comment that in the online world, the text-based online world in particular, even simple first degree ironies, very dangerous. I can't count the number of flame wars that got ignited over the years, where people misinterpreted an ironic stance or statement, simple statement, clearly ironic, at least from the author's perspective, but the readers go, ah, how can you say that? And off we go to the races. So it, you know, and I think this is my overall critique on the ironic stance, is that it adds noise to the system, right? It doesn't add any value. If I have to think on whether you are being ironic or sincere and there's a significant chance I'm going to make a mistake how can that be adding value to the conversation
1: yeah i, I think there's something about humor though that is i mean playing with language playing with meaning playing with you know each other in communication is 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 is, is necessary okay it's it's survival we have to have that um, so there's this this need for I mean you know when you're when you're playing in the in the humor realm you have this ability to find the edges of an epistemological positioning or epistemological perception just you know what are the limits and humor plays with those limits but I think there's something else going on here which I I sometimes call um, the ecology of communication. And it's this kind of recognizing that in our communication, there are things that are possible that can grow here. And while we are in communication, we're constantly exploring and learning about what those limits might be. And I'm not really sure, and you're not really sure. And actually, it's changing as we go along. So neither one of us should be sure. It's completely appropriate as two living Creatures to be in a constant state of exploration about where we are in, in possibility. Okay, so where I am feeling frustration with what's happening with irony is in the initial inability to perceive the ecology of communication, which I think is what you're referring to, you know, in a way when you're saying that the author didn't mean it But in the online space, there's not enough other contextual information, and so it gets misunderstood. Um, There's also a lot of contextual information that is pitting people against each other with very high stakes in polarized scriptings. And so uh, it doesn't take very much to make a bad joke. And so... I guess that's part of it is just recognizing what's in the ecology of the communication. And, and in that we have, I mean, honestly there's, it's a mess. The world of information and communication is a mess right now. It's like someone poured caustic sauce all over the structures of, of information distribution and, um and reception and and at this point anything you look up you can look up the opposite and that's true too and you know does does coffee cure glaucoma or cause it yes both and there's plenty of information for both sides of that so so I think one of the things you have to have if you have irony that isn't harmful is you have to have some degree of shared understoods.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That strikes me as the essence of it that when one is in strong link relationships with people and are already grounded at the emotional level, then irony can be fun. It's an ingredient. Or if it's in a context which is well understood, like in a play or coming out of a movie or something. But As people start moving up the irony stack, they do so long before they establish the relationship in emotional reality with the other person, what I've long distinguished as a strong link as opposed to a weak link. And I would argue that as people move up the ironic stack, the ability to make strong links and real emotional connection goes away. And so back to this taxonomy of irony. So we have first degree irony, you know, the dramatic irony of Shakespeare and, you know, making a sarcastic comment, which could be dangerous online in particular, to kind of the second layer of what I would call performativity, right? Where people aren't actually being themselves, but are doing a role. And in so-called post irony, they're initially doing it ironically, but they do it so long that it becomes unironic and that's their life you know, a classic example is the hipster fedora, right? (laughs) Originally, that was done ironically by some guys, guys, all guys, in Brooklyn back in, I don't know if it was the early 90s, I think. They were just goofing around, right? And then other people saw that and started imitating them, and it actually became a sort of habituated behavior of people for this Brooklyn hipster 1992 thing, which was highly ironic intentionally, and it's became post ironic, and so essentially people are living deeper in a simulation of life rather than a reality of life.
1: Hmm. Whatever that is, and and that's the thing is that I think it, it would be a mistake to pit earnestness against irony in a binary because i think you can be earnest in your irony too there's earnest humor and there's earnest you know fumbling but it may be more humble and and that's interesting because in this performative thing that you're talking about boy that that's interesting because i'm thinking about how we've been in these you know zoom boxes for the last 2 years and and i went to a conference in person recently um just a couple weeks ago and there was an overwhelming sense of what are we doing here in this conference it's so great to see these other human beings but we can have this conference online like let's go build a fire let's go dance let's go cook something let's do something human together and and uh, so this performative thing is very interesting right now when it's face to face because I I definitely feel a difference.
0: That's interesting. I have yet to go to a major event. Been to a, you know a few small parties with people that are coming out of our groundhog holes after two years. I may go to an event in June. So it'd be quite interesting to see how different it is. After two years in isolation, and I hope that you're right, that we realize that actually Zoom is quite efficient for some things, and we should not go all the way back. On the other hand, singing and dancing and having a beer and running barefoot around a bonfire at night, those are things you can only do face to face.
1: Let's do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's do that non-ironically. Let's do that as a slightly evolved ape called Homo sapiens, right? <laughs> Which then gets me to my next level in the taxonomy of irony. And this is the one that I really find disturbing. And the experts claim that a fair amount of people, particularly younger folks, actually live in this space called meta-irony. Where the whole point of one's stance, and this is again where I think once irony goes from an ingredient to a stance is where it becomes problematic. But the meta-ironic stance is where essentially all the time you are saying things where the whole point is for it to be difficult for people to figure out whether you're being ironic or sincere. And I go, wow. You know, this is this idea that I think that we've been groping towards, but taken to an extreme, where literally one is living in a stance where one wants to literally constantly be unclear on whether one is being sincere or ironic. And I again come back to you know just the basic information theory. How does that help us do collective sense making? How does that help us communicate in a real grounded way? Let alone, how does that help us be? actual slightly evolved apes called homo sapiens and be grounded in reality when I have to parse everything you say and frankly be wrong fairly often about whether you're being sincere or ironic. Why is that a good thing?
1: Yeah. Why is that a good thing? And uh, I I mean, communication is, uh, is sacred. Relationships are made of communication, So, and it's how we move information around. It's how we respond to our environment. Um, it, and so messing with communication can be something that leads to evolutionary jumps and new ways of seeing, new, new possibilities for communicating, um, but it can also destroy relationships. And in that destruction of relationships is the destruction of, of possibility. So, um, you know, we are in a moment, I think you would probably agree with me, where culturally, economically, ecologically, uh, politically, technologically, there is breakdown beginning. We are in a systemic breakdown and a systemic breakdown, it always cracks me up, you know, when I hear people say, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, deal with systemic issues in economy or systemic issues of health or systemic issues of justice. And it's like, listen, the second you put that thing on the end of it, it stopped being systemic just just for the record <laughs> you're either doing systemic stuff which is to all the system or you're not if you're doing systemic something or other you, you just left the you just left the program my friend anyway systemic breakdown is on and when it is there of course one of the things that is going to break down is communication relationships are breaking and expectations Um, patterns, entire cultural modalities of belief and epistemology that were locked into particular forms of what it was possible to communicate, right? What it was possible to communicate is not the same thing as what was communicated. And so I think that there's something about this meta-ironic thing that is a grasping or a a response to being in a world that frankly doesn't make any sense. It's just paradoxes and double binds everywhere you look. And, and so I can see how there could be a sort of cynicism and not the good kind of cynicism. Okay. There's, there's a kind of cynicism where you, you're questioning and a kind of cynicism where there's no more affection for life. And I think maybe what you and I are touching on here is that for me, I'll just see if I can put this into some kind of clear sentence. I don't want to lose the undertones that are the real meta message that communicate affection for life itself. And when the irony or the meta irony or the sarcasm or the, whatever it is, leaves the land in which it's possible to be in a shared affection for life, we're in big trouble.
0: Very well said. Very well said. That's actually the heart of it, I think, in some sense right there. Let me wrap a little bit back on on what you just said, because it really struck another nerve for me, which is you describe the people in, the let's say, the meta-ironic stance who feel like they're embedded in this crazy machine that they don't understand, and they just take a radical, cynical perspective. I'm going to throw another word out that I hear fairly often is despair, that this meta-ironic stance and high cynicism, negative cynicism may be a reaction to despair. And man, does that bug me because yes, things are screwed up uh, and and, and getting worse, but it certainly seems to me they are well within our ability to overcome this if we don't lose our courage. And again, I alluded to it earlier, I I find the meta-ironic stance in particular A cowardly one, you know, not being willing to put down what you think and to speak earnestly, honestly, and groundedly with other real human beings to form the kinds of strong links that will allow us to work cooperatively at high levels of efficacy to get on these problems, right? If we all sit around doing our performative meta ironicism, we're never going to solve climate change or the breakdown of good faith discourse
1: what do you think constitutes or are the conditions for morale? Because I think that that comes into this sort of, for me, the opposite of despair is some kind of morale. It's like a, a spirit, a, a shared strength that comes from, I don't know, it comes from a warm place. Okay. I work in warm data. I'm allowed to say that it comes from something warm that is shared and and I'm interested in this idea of morale. My friend Philip Gnaby and I have been sort of exploring it of what is this thing that in, in the dark of the night, when everything goes wrong, we have each other to go forward with. And there's some extra, there's an extra pocket of possibility that we tap into and um, it, it seems to me that this notion of morale is the op- it's, it's the opposite of cynicism. Okay, if there's no shared affection for life, there's not going to be any morale. And and this affection is not a, a. It's not just a lovey-dovey, you know, teddy bears and rainbows concept. It's it's actually, you know, to to have affection for life is to recognize that life can be cruel, right? Forests burn down. People get murdered. Things happen.
0: Crops fail,
1: right? Crops fail. Um, Babies die, right? And still somehow we have to get up after this darkness, inside the darkness, and continue. And where does that come from? What can I do, Jim, in my communication with you or with anyone else to help nourish that possibility in each other?
0: Yep. Very well said. You know, I can feel it actually that, you know, you're reaching out in a very sincere and earnest way here and putting your feelings and your reality on the line here for me to absorb. And that alone is a good start. And you know, if where there isn't a return to earnestness, that may be a place to start. Let's just be fully honest with each other and expose as much as we can about what we're really thinking and how we're really feeling about things and do it in a way that is you know, grounded in our mutual humanity and knowing that we're both committed to trying to find solutions to these problems, not retreating into despair or cynicism. To the bigger question of morale, I love that actually. I haven't heard the word used in that way, but I may steal it, give credit, of course in the game b world we have a view that's very much like that which is we believe that the big turn for the wrong starting about 1870 in the west now moving elsewhere was the gradual destruction of the meso scale meso scale meaning what the anthropologists would say are like extended families in places where extended families are how society is organized or villages interesting catholicism Banned cousin marriages, which actually destroyed the extended family. We had a had a very interesting chat on my podcast with a guy about that. And instead we built villages. But it turns out both are about the same size, 150 people, a Dunbar number. And these are your security blanket, right? If you live in a extended family or a traditional village and you know you become disabled, they'll take care of you. Locusts eat your crops, somebody will feed you. There is an inherent sense of security about being part of a mesoscale society. And since about 1870, the face-to-face community, whether it's extended family or village, has been replaced by the market on one side and government on the other, both cold and transactional that are essentially atomic. They're my relationship to the market. They're my relationship to the government. They're not our relationship as a mesoscale community around the Dunbar number of 150. And so the approach that we're starting to take, in fact, I'm at looking at another parcel of land today, is to actually rebuild the mesoscale by doing what we call proto-bees, which are on-the-ground communities of about 150 people up to 150 adults, where we look in specifically to rebuild this sense of morale, morale, moral being. And some of the things that we've talked about that we believe are parts of that are coherence that's our term the game b term for what we talked about earlier being really in communications with each other completely sincerely with everything the emotional the cognitive laid on the table and neither side ever uses it as, as a weapon and the other one which is just so important to you know your your story about going to the meeting and that's conviviality the anthropologists tell us that our forager ancestors worked three or four hours a day at the most. And most of the time they spent telling stories, uh, drinking, having sex in the bushes, creating artifacts, writing stories, telling stories, you know, et cetera. And so some combination of the mesoscale The practice of interpersonal coherence and a real commitment to conviviality is at least some reasonable steps forward, I suspect, to return us to a way of being which is high in morale. Actually, I love that term.
1: Okay. So what happens then when the sincerity... Okay. So I I grew up in all kinds of communities, all right? I'm a West Coast kid. I've been in every manner of... Chop wood, carry water scene, right? And they all went wrong. And they all went wrong, I would say, for a couple of reasons. But one of them, and this is something that I puzzle with all the time, is that there is a particular vocabulary that is associated with particular experiences. And the problem is. How do you actually express what you're really feeling without tapping into these tropes and scripts in the cultural vocabulary that are maybe not really what you feel, but it's kind of like the best thing that you got to express yourself. And the next thing you know, you come out with a psychological label. This is depression. This is this. This is that. This is... This is homophobia. This is, you know, whatever it is, there is an an existing set of swirling scripts and this process of going inward to assess what it is that you are actually feeling, thinking, exploring is kind of beyond words. And so the knee jerk thing is to grab one of these scripts because they're coherent. In a different way, the other way of being coherent, the familiar, like this is something that I know people will understand if I say it.
0: They're grooved into our brains, essentially, right?
1: They're grooved in. And, and so, I mean, how many times have you been in a chat room recently where someone exposes something and then someone says, thank you for sharing your vulnerability. And it's like, oh my God, that you just made it unreal. You just took it, away. like it's gone now. That was something beautiful. And now you just turned it into another script.
0: A form of performativity.
1: Right. And, and so that's part of the issue. Okay. Then the other thing that is, and I think these things are tied together is that in that same moment that you're talking about, and I'm so curious that you brought this up because I'm looking at this exact same moment in time and realizing we have to really look at what happened then. And and what was happening right in that moment of the 1870s is eugenics was born. This is when psychology was born. This is when the education system as we know it began. This is when the entire institutional ecology, okay this grouping of institutions was formed around industrialism at a pace that was breakneck, okay? And this is when math changes and statistics happen. And every single statistician of that moment was a card-carrying eugenicist.
0: Yeah, The most famous ones for sure, right?
1: Right. So so in this moment is this violence that has taken place. And it's a violence against everything. It's a violence against life, basically.
0: Yeah, it's actually, I'll add another one to the list. 1870, even though we think of it as mostly being earlier, 1870 was approximately the high-water mark of imperialism. This was the great land rush in Africa, where Africa was chopped up amongst the European powers, and combining eugenicists and, and deeply racist attitudes, it was literally, I would say, around 1870, the high-water mark of white supremacy and radical imperialistic colonialism. It was considered right. It was considered good and holy, which is really quite remarkable.
1: And Because good and holy had to do with productive and efficient. And, and these things are not what life is.
0: But also exploitative, right? If you could make them the other, if you could make the persons in the South the other— I don't care how miserable you make them, as long as we benefit from it and are efficient in an industrial model, then, oh, yeah, that's the good thing to do.
1: And prioritizing some form of something that would be normal. And the minute you can identify normal, what you've actually done is you've identified what's abnormal. And then the thinking of how do we fix this comes in. Now, the reason this is important to irony and communication and community in this moment is that our deep epistemological presuppositions are infected with this stuff. It's deep. And and I, I truly think that until we take this seriously and stop underestimating How much this approach to, you know, it's really easy to talk about interdependency and complexity and systems thinking, but then you get down to the bottom levels where this, you know, but, but what is a solution? What is an action? How do you actually think about development? For example, is this linear? Is it hierarchical? Can you identify it? Is it okay for one person to identify somebody else's success or development or and there are questions in there that that I think we're avoiding
0: yeah, they're tough questions, and you know my response to it is that a lot of the work of you know people I otherwise admire have implicitly assumed that everybody's an IQ 130 graduate student, right? And in reality, a righteous society must provide a life of dignity and fulfillment to everybody, everybody, no matter what their intellectual, biological, or familial endowments might be. And that's one of the things I I really hope that we are able to do in our Proto-Bs is not be a place for IQ 130 graduate students only, yeah, we'll have a few, but a place for regular folks, right? To live great lives. And then to your earlier point, these scripts our label, we call them game A malware. And we're very well aware that we're all full of them. And I've said more than once on, in public occasions, I'm too old and set my ways to purge myself of all my game A malware. But I've thrown a little bit of it out. And I hope to throw out more. And as long as we're conscious that it's there and that we are all intersubjectively conscious that we all have it. I think that's actually the first step, right? Is to say intersubjectively, I've got malware, you got malware. And it's literally grooves in our brains. It was worn in at a young age and it will be really hard to expunge it. If you know what's there, you can do kind of the meta thing, right? Just got kind of to get a little off left field. But my view of free will, I stole this from other people, but not an original creation, is that most of our actions actually come from our, not in our conscious frame, but lower levels. And what free will is actually about is we have about half a second to veto actions. And that's what free will is. And so if we become cognitively aware that we have these scripts, which are essentially like subroutines in software. And as you said, it's really easy to go run that script have it rise up towards consciousness and that that last half a second learn to say no to that. That may be a set of practices that can allow us to at least reduce the efficacy of this damn game A malware. And those are some of the things we're going to be experimenting with in our proto-Bs. And we do not have the answers, by the way. And yes, we're very, 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 very aware of the history of intentional communities and the low rate of success, though we have found some that have worked. Israeli kibbutzes are a very interesting example because they're not woo-woo at all. They're very practical. They have very high coherence. They have substantial conviviality, and they are mission-oriented, et cetera. And so there's one place to look. And then the Amish and Mennonites, while not actually – operated exactly the same way, have a lot of things that are also worth borrowing that have worked here in the United States since about 1690. It turns out the ruts were originally Mennonites that came over from Germany in 1690. Our branch of the family were apostates by about 1800, but it has gotten me to look at what they've done. And so yes, you know, the back to the land and earlier intentional communities, they all failed. We're aware of it, look it into why, and we may fail too, for the same reasons, but we we do think that if we're discerning about just exactly these kinds of things, maybe, maybe we can make it work. We'll find out
1: One thing that came in in that same moment is this attention to the individual, that it's the individual who's abnormal or the indi- you know to 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 clump out the individual. The development happens in the individual not in the context. If you're gonna if you're gonna teach compassion, you teach it to the individuals. You don't create the conditions in which <laughs> compassion would be a natural response, which I is so wacko to me. I I just can't even I hear about this all the time and I, I just can't believe that that some very smart people are still on this program of trying to insert education that makes people more honest or compassionate or earnest right and and it that's not where it is and i think that that's really important for this conversation is that really the conversation is what are the conditions in which it becomes possible to be earnest with each other instead of thinking we can you know insert that earnestness as a rule or a policy or some sort of a bylaw of the community it's really the the better question is what what does it feel like to be in a situation In which your earnestness is welcome.
0: Yeah, and I would go a step further and say not only welcome, but indispensable. If these attempts to form coherent, convivial, mesoscale ways of being are going to succeed, I'm going to put the flag in the ground and say they've got to be based on earnestness as one of their ground conditions and yes the ingredient of irony in jokes and theater etc should not be run away as you said humor is hugely important to our bonding but the ironic stance where people in my community can't tell whether I'm telling the truth or not it just seems totally directionally completely wrong to reestablish mesoscale coherence etc and that a return to earnestness is probably a first degree requirement to make this work.
1: It's recognizing I think too that information and this is sort of at the core of the warm data work, you know, people talk about information as being qualitative or quantitative. And I I for me I'm like yeah but actually no. What's interesting to me is when the information is alive. And that's a, a substantive difference than it just being qualitative or quantitative because alive information doesn't stay the same. And so when we are communicating with information that's alive, our communication is alive. And we are participating in life in another way. And it feels different, looks different, sounds different. It's it's the whole bit of it is different. And the, you know, the, it's an approach that like that moment in, the, in 1870 around then, okay? So from, I would say, the whole, that whole century. But there's a good deal of talk right now about transformation and systems change and what that means. And, and for all the wrong reasons, in all the most destructive ways, in that moment in history, by God, they had systems change.
0: They sure as shit did, right?
1: Transcontextual <laughs> all the way down, and it changed everything—from the way the family worked to the way language, to the way people ate, to how, where they got their food, how they practiced their spirituality or religion, what what money was, what relationship to the past and the future. And my God, everything changed, and and it changed so totally. That it's actually very difficult to get out of it. But the seduction of control and linear causality is, I mean, it's, it's getting boring to talk about this because we've been talking about it for so long. But the thing is, if you just hear yourself speaking and I hear myself speaking and I say things like, I want to do this to do that. I want to go here to do this. And there it is. It's in the language. It's so embedded. You want to buy the just right apple at the store and you want to live in a way that is somehow optimal. You want to optimize.
0: In some sense, it's the triumph of the complicated over the complex. Here's why it worked. Because it paid off in shiny objects, right? And ease. And a lot of that ease is great. I mean, the amount of domestic drudgery that was eliminated by the vacuum cleaner and the automatic washing machine. I'm old enough to have remembered our first washing machine was a ringer washing machine where my mother had to run all the clothes through the ringer to squeeze the water out of it and then hang it on the line. It didn't automatically spin, for instance. You know, It was a big deal. And when we got an automated washing machine at about Eight or 10 years later, we actually got a dryer. We didn't have to take stuff out, hang it on the line. Though, truthfully, I missed the smell of clothes dried on the line, which are actually much nicer. You know, these things, they paid off, which is why we were sucked into it. But now what has happened, it is starting to destroy human well-being.
1: Completely.
0: Yeah. Like suicide rates, deaths of despair, totally amazing numbers of middle-aged people in America that are taking psychoactive drugs. For supposedly depression or anxiety, et cetera. I mean, like 30, 40% in some communities. What in the world kind of way of life is that?
1: Something has gone terribly wrong.
0: Yeah, the beast has just run ahead, right? And and so the game B move is to pivot to maximizing human well-being while actually minimizing the number of shiny objects. Because we're not going to make it through climate change if we don't, by my calculations, Europeans need to cut their consumption, their inputs of energy and stuff about two-thirds, and Americans about 75% if we're going to live at a scale where everybody on earth could live at that scale and it could be in balance with mother nature. And that's possible. It can be done. But if the Davos man approach happens, which is just to pound it out of us, it isn't going to happen. We're going to get a fascist dictatorship instead. Look what happened in France with a, you know.
1: With Macron. Exactly. And, you know, and and that idea that you're going to top down tell people how to live their lives is just a recipe for revolution. That's all it is.
0: And in the current context, the revolution in the West is probably towards fascism. Certainly is what it feels like. So not good stuff. So back to our original topic, you know, there's these, these bad trajectories, I say they started in 1700 and then accelerated around 1870 into, the, and then in 1975, they were in their final form and we're now in late stage, whatever this is, or hopefully late stage, meaning maybe it's near the end. Back to earnestness and the turn to earnestness, I really do feel that it's a necessary substrate for these other good things to happen. You know, The return to face-to-face mesoscale communities, morale in your terms, coherence, Conviviality, et cetera. And, you know, maybe that's the call out we should be doing now, people is an easy step. Maybe you can't quit your job and move to a proto bee, et cetera, but you can focus on being more earnest in your interactions with the people you're close to. That alone would be a big step.
1: I mean, I think it's that thing of asking the question, you know, in that nanosecond you're talking about. If this communication is dropping into an ecology of communication, what is it going to bring? What possibilities does it open? And and, and which, which does it close? And uh, just recognizing that that everything that happens in our communication, we have to live in because the, it shapes and forms our relationships. And so what, what are we putting in? What are you holding back? I mean, I think that's another big part of this is that it has been um, cultural suicide to reveal yourself. And so there's been holdback. And I, I call this, you know, systems holdback is what sort of a frame of schismogenesis that is, a, it, breaks system, it breaks relationships. If I don't put in what I could put in, and you don't put in what you could put in, and I, I know that you're not going to put in what you could put in, so I don't put in what I could put in, and I don't try because you're not trying. This is that thing you were referring to as being not very courageous, right? But, but really what it is, is totally dehumanized, devitalized. Not, there's nothing to make a relationship out of. There's nothing to make coherence out of. There's just a wasteland where nothing can grow.
0: Very well said. And, you know, if we think about our interpersonal communications as an ecosystem, if everybody is holding back and not going all in with their full personage, it's going to be a, a thin, dry, inauthentic ecosystem that we'll have created. And again, another argument for the return to all-in personal earnestness in our interactions with each other. But very interesting conversation. Looked at this from very many perspectives. Uh, what are what are your final thoughts on this?
1: Okay, my final thoughts on this are not going to be final; they're ongoing. But let's just start with that. I just see that we are in a ecology of communication and relationship with each other with the natural world with our ideas themselves of history of what is math what is success what is our identity you know all of these things and that this ecology that we live in is changing and it's changing rapidly right now and so in all directions there is a kind of a meltdown Blurring, pixelating, coming apartness, shredding, confusion. And honestly, I think we have to have that confusion. I don't think there's any way out of that. We're going to have to go there. So, in order to even potentially live in another way, we need to have different ideas of even what it means to be sexually attractive or to be credible or to be smart or to be lovable. As these things are melting and confusing, it's like we're tumbling in a wave and we don't know which way up is anymore or down or sideways or where the shore is or who we're going to be when we get there. And so I guess for me, that's the reason, that's the underlying thing of, look, we are in transformation and how do we hold each other as we go through this so that we don't Make it nastier. It's not going to be easy, so let's not be nasty.
0: And maybe a uh, move to earnestness will help. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for a wonderful, interesting conversation. I know you have to go on to another call, and I look forward to talking to you again.
1: Thank you, Jim. It's so fun to talk, and we should definitely do this more often.
0: Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com